Well, we're coming to the end of a semester, and if you are a a student, particularly a college student, at the beginning of your first semester of freshman year, your school got a group of freshmen together to make sure that you knew all the things that you needed to know to be able to function as a student at this school, and they called that thing freshman orientation, right? Freshman orientation. Of course, orientation isn't just for freshmen. Uh, if you've started a new job, very often a company will have a, a, you know, a orientation for a new hire uh, where you get to learn everything that you need to be aware of uh, to, to get started as an employee of that company. Uh, you get to, to walk through an orientation, usually a, a week or so. Do you ever wish that there was an orientation for how to be a human? I mean, wouldn't it just make life so much easier if, I mean, there's situations you encounter in life. It's like, did I, was there something that was supposed to prepare me for this? Was I supposed to know, like, did I miss that week of orientation that was supposed to teach me what I'm supposed to do, you know, the, what, the training I need? Um, you know, here's training on uh, how to make sure you don't end up dating a psychopath. Oh, man, that's going to get me out of a jam one day. Or, you know, here's what to do when the family member that no one gets along with shows up for Thanksgiving. Oh, man, <laughs> that, that would be a great Part of orientation to just figure out how can I handle these different situations that come up. There's all sorts of different things in life that we encounter. Like, man, I just wish I knew how to be a human in this situation. I'm here, but I didn't know that I was going to have to encounter thinking through this topic. I didn't know I was going to have to encounter dealing with this kind of relationship. I didn't know I was going to have to deal with this. And it would have helped if I'd known what a human is supposed to do in this situation. Because we all, we want to be the best that we can be. But it's hard to know what that is a lot of times. Well, consider then what an amazing gift we have in Scripture's witness to who Jesus is. The Scriptures put before us the ideal human. The perfect man, Jesus. The scriptures show us Jesus. They paint this portrait and put it before us and say, here, this is what a human is supposed to be. This is how a human is supposed to relate to God. This is how a human is supposed to relate to other people. This is how a human is supposed to respond in every situation. This is how a human ought to think. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul's main burden is about the thinking of the Christians in Philippi. He he wants them to have a certain mindset, a mindset of unity, a mindset of love, a mindset of humility, a mindset of service. And then in verse 5, he tells them to have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Jesus. So the mindset that he wants them to have as humans is the mindset of the perfect man, Christ Jesus. He wants them to have the same way of thinking 
that Jesus had. He, he wants the way of thinking that Jesus had to be their way of thinking. And he doesn't just want each one of them to have it individually. He, he wants them to have it among themselves. This is the mind, the mindset that is supposed to be lived out within the community of the local church. So as we approach Philippians chapter 2, my, my burden for us is that we would look to the mind of Christ, the, the mindset that Jesus had specifically in his incarnation. And that we would see in his mindset how God wants all of us to think, the mindset that he wants all of us to have. Well, in approaching this subject, Paul is going to call us to rethink your status, rethink your identity, and rethink your obedience. The mind of Christ is going to be formed in us. We're going to need to rethink a few things. And the first thing that you're going to need to rethink is rethink your status. Rethink your status. Well, Paul begins describing the mind of Christ in verse 6. Look at that verse again with me. Who? Talking about Jesus. Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So in this verse, Paul first describes Jesus' nature, his nature. Jesus was in the form of God. That word form means nature or essence. So to say that Jesus was in the form of God is to say that he was God by his very nature. In his very nature, he was God. Jesus had a divine nature. So, let's back up and give some, some context to this. There is one God. He is uncreated, and he created all things. And this one God has existed for all of eternity. There has never been a time when God did not exist. And this one God has existed eternally in three persons, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. One God in three persons. We call this truth the, the Trinity. And each of the three persons of the Trinity have a distinct personality, a distinct role, a distinct responsibility, but they were all fully God. They're equal and their divinity, and fully God. So God the Son is not one-third God. He's 100% God, just like the Father is 100% God, and the Holy Spirit is 100% God. Every aspect of what it means to be God was fully true of God the Son by nature. We saw this last week whenever we were in John 1, and Dalen took us back to John 1, verse, verse 1. John writes, In the beginning was the Word, referring to God the Son. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So when John says, 
that in the beginning was the Word, uh, he's saying that God the Son existed for all of eternity. Uh, In the beginning, he was already there because he has never not existed. And the Word, God the Son, was with God. And that word with shows uh, that the Son is a distinct person who has a relationship, uh, a withness with the other persons of the Trinity. There's, there's a distinction. There's relationship. But John also says the Word was God, which is a helpful clarification because when John says the Word was with God, he's not saying that here's God over here and the Word is this other thing with God. No, he clarifies, no, the Word was God. The Word, the Son, is fully 100% God. He has a divine nature. So this is the Son's nature. He is fully divine. God the Son has the form of God, the nature, the essence of God. This is who He is. So Paul introduces that idea, but then he goes on to say, but what was the Son's mindset about his divine nature. The Son was in the form of God, God by very nature, yet Paul says he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now that word count, he did not count uh, it describes a way of thinking. Again, Paul is setting this all up to say have This mind among yourselves, the same mind that is in Christ Jesus. So he's describing how Jesus thought about his divine nature. What was Jesus' mindset about being God? We get into the mind of Christ here. And again, after all, the Son is equal with God the Father. He has equality with God the Father. Uh, This is something we've already seen just in the the first phrase here. And this is something that Jesus made clear in his earthly ministry, uh, in his incarnate ministry as he uh, was was on this earth. In John 5, 18, after Jesus called God his Father, uh, John writes, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. So the Son had equality with God. But how did he think about that? How did he regard that? How did he count that? He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He didn't count it something to be grasped. Uh, The New Living Translation puts it this way. He did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. He was equal with God, but he did not have a tight grip on that status. Uh, The Christian Standard Bible translates it this way. He did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Or consider the the New International Version. He did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. 
So when the son thought about his divine nature, his mindset was not, this is something I'm going to hold on to and make the most of for my benefit and take advantage of for myself. Instead, when the son thought about his very nature as God the creator, he had a loose grip and he said, no, this is not something for me to exploit. This is something for me to use to benefit others. Consider the rights, the status that Jesus had as God the Son. He had the right to be worshipped. He had the right to be served. He had the right to expect everyone to agree with him without questioning him. He had the right to do whatever he wanted to do. He had the right to expect everything that equality with God entails. But Jesus did not consider equality with God as something to cling to. Jason Meyer summarizes it this way. God is a giver, not a grasper. Let's go back to what Paul says in verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves. Christ's mind was one of a giver, not a grasper. When he thought about his status, he didn't think this is something to cling to and use for me. He had the mindset of a giver. So think about your status. Do you have the mindset of a giver? Or do you have the mindset of a grasper? Paul said back in verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Uh, selfish ambition is the idea of, of striving uh, or, or even grasping or, or rivalry, competition. It, it's the idea of climbing up the ladder and, and getting an edge or, or, or the upper hand. Conceit is the idea of empty pride or, or vain pride. It's an overinflated view of self, an overinflated view of status and rights and privilege. Jesus had an actual high status, the highest status, but he did not consider that as something to use for his own advantage. Whereas we so often strive for a status with an artificial sense of entitlement and what we deserve. And the mind of Christ, that is not a grasper but a giver, is what Paul says he wants the Philippians to have. It's what we as a church, as we live out our life together as the body of Christ, this is the kind of mind that we ought to have with one another when we think about our status as well. So what does this look like in the local church? Well, so when I first became a youth pastor here, uh, there were some older elementary kids who came to me, I think on a Wednesday night, and they asked if they could go play games in the youth room. And I said, yes. But some of the junior hires uh, who had only been in youth for a little while got really upset with me when I told the 
elementary kids that they could go play in the youth room. Because apparently, when those junior hires were in elementary, they had been told that they had to wait until they were in youth before they could play in the youth room. So this is an outrage. If we had to wait, then they should have to wait too, right? Do you know how much we did to earn this status? He got older. (laughs) You managed not to die by the time you reached junior high. But anyway, but... No, we had the status, and we want to use it, and we want to have a leg up and lord that over the elementary kids who aren't allowed to be in our youth room. That's what we're all like, right? We want to grasp our status and lord it over others. But the mind of Christ says, whatever status I have, that's not something for me to use for me. And it's certainly not something for me to use and weaponize against others. Of course, that's just, I mean, that's youth, right? I mean, adults, we're way more mature than that. We would never do anything like that or think of our status that way, right? We would never try to cling to our little territory out of an overinflated view of self, would we? Or perhaps you've heard yourself say something like, well, you know, I'm, I'm an elder, so, so um, or, you know, I'm a, I'm a pastor, well, you know, as a, as a deacon here, or, well, you know, as a, as a staff member here, or, well, you know, I, I've been at this church for this many years, so, or, well, you know, I, I've always been the one who does this, and so, we, we like to take whatever status we have and, and grasp it. And use it to our own advantage. But the mind of Christ says, I may have it, but I don't have to leverage it. I don't have to exploit it. Uh, Those of us in positions of authority especially ought to think about what the mind of Christ would look like lived out in our roles of authority. Pastors. Do we grasp our status as leaders to use it to our own personal advantage? Or do we consider it as something that we are to use to benefit others? Husbands, do we have a tight grip on our headship? Or do we have the mind of Christ who did not regard his status as something to exploit? Parents, are we clinging to our authority to make our kids bow to our every whim? Or are we using our status for their good? Jesus was fully God. Yet, he didn't think of his status as being equal with God as something to grasp cling to. He had a loose grip on his status. This was his mindset. And that's the kind of mindset that Jesus is forming in those who belong to him. So may we think about our status, whatever it may be, in the same way that Christ thinks about his status. We need to rethink our status. But not only that, need to rethink our identity. Rethink our identity. So in verse 6, Paul told us what Jesus did not 
do. He did not count equality with God as something to cling to. But now in verse 7, Paul tells us what he did do instead. But emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Jesus emptied himself, Paul says. Now, it's very important that we think carefully about what Paul means when he says that Jesus emptied himself. Because when Paul says that Jesus emptied himself, he is not saying that he emptied himself of his divine nature. It's not as if Jesus was a container with God in it, and he dumped out the divinity so he could replace it with humanity. Okay, so that's not what's going on. When Jesus came to earth, he did not stop being God. Baby in the manger, still God. He did not stop being God. How how do we know this? Well, because if the eternal God had stopped being God, that would mean he would have to change. But God cannot change. Hebrews 13, 8 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And furthermore, we we already read in John 5, 18 that while Jesus was on earth in human form, he still identified himself as being equal with God. Uh, So no, Jesus did not empty himself of his divine nature. He did not cease to be God. He could not cease to be God. So what does Paul mean when he says Jesus emptied himself? Well, thankfully, he tells us exactly what he means in those next two phrases. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. He emptied himself by being born in the likeness of men. So in the incarnation, Jesus did empty himself. But that was an emptying that came not by subtraction. Jesus did not take away his divine nature. His emptying came by addition. Jesus took on human nature. The emptying came not by subtraction, but by addition. Bruce Ware who uh, some of you might remember, he, he, uh, he spoke here uh, a number of years ago. Bruce Ware, in his book, The Man Christ Jesus, gives a really helpful illustration of this idea of emptying, not by taking away, but by adding, emptying by adding. So imagine you go to a car dealership, and uh, you see on the showroom floor this bright, shiny new car, and you ask to test drive this car. So The salesman says, yes, he gives you the keys, you hop in, drive it off the showroom floor, and you take it out for a test drive. And, uh, of course, you need to know how it handles in the country. And so you take it off the paved roads and uh, onto some unpaved dirt roads. 
and uh, it rained the night before, and so you were really going to get a chance to see just how well it handles in these uh, muddy conditions. Uh, and, and so you're going through all these different roads and you know, splatters everywhere, windshield wipers moving the caked mud across the windshield, and you bring it back to the dealer, and you drive it right back onto the, uh, the showroom floor. It's got you know, mud clots drip, dripping off of it. And the salesman comes up to you and he says, what did you do to my car? When you can say to him with full honesty, I, I didn't take anything away from your car. I didn't subtract from it at all. But look at it. He's like, oh, yeah, I added to it. <laughs> because nothing of the glory of what made that car great was taken away. There was something added to it. And so there was an emptying, not by subtraction, but by addition. The car's glory never diminished. It's just harder to see now because of what you've added to it. Jesus emptied himself, not by subtraction, not by taking something away, but by adding something to himself, a human nature. And just to press it a little further, think, think back to that word emptied, emptied. You know, the word empty can have two different meanings. So imagine that I have a pitcher of lemonade and I'm pouring it into a cooler. On the one hand, I can say, I am emptying the pitcher, which means I am removing something from the pitcher in that process. I'm taking the fullness of the lemonade out, the whole quantity of the lemonade out of the pitcher. So that's one sense of emptying, emptying it of lemonade. On the other hand, I could just as well say, I am emptying the lemonade into the cooler. You see that? I can say I'm emptying the pitcher, or I can say I'm emptying the lemonade into the cooler. And when I say that, I'm, when I say that I'm emptying the lemonade, I'm saying I'm taking the fullness of the lemonade, the whole quantity, and pouring it out entirely into the cooler. Well, if you look back at Philippians 2.7, Paul did not say that Jesus emptied himself of something, like you would empty a pitcher of lemonade. Paul said Jesus emptied himself. He didn't take something away from himself. He took the fullness of his divinity and poured it out entirely into a human being. The miracle and the mystery of the incarnation is that Jesus is now one person with two natures. One person, two natures. Notice in verse 7, Paul uses that word form again. We said before, form means nature, essence. Jesus had a divine nature, and he did not stop having a divine nature. In the incarnation, Jesus added a human nature to his divine nature. So that now he is 100% God and 100% man. And that's important. Jesus is not 50% God, 50% man. Jesus is 100% God and 100% man in one person. But, but notice how Paul describes what it means that the Son of God became a man. 
He says he took the form of a servant. The form, the nature of a servant. He was the eternal creator with all the rights and privileges in the world. He had master status. And he didn't stop being God, but he did choose not to cling to those rights and privileges. And instead, Jesus set aside the glory that comes with master status, and he chose to take on servant status by becoming a human. The creator chose to live as a creature. The master became like one of us. And having the mind of Christ means taking on the identity of a servant, just like Jesus took on the form of a servant. Having the mind of Christ means taking on the identity of a servant. What does this look like for us? We'll look at verse 3 again. We looked at part of it a second ago. Paul says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. This is the difference between a master mindset and a servant mindset. When I have a master mindset, I consider myself more significant than others. After all, I'm the master. Others exist to serve me. But when I have a servant mindset, I consider others more significant. Because after all, I'm a servant. I exist to serve someone else. And then look at verse 4 as well. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. That word look, uh, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but to the interests of others. That idea, uh, look, is the idea of attentiveness. When I have a master mindset, I am only attentive to my interests. My thoughts are consumed by what I want and how to get it. When I have a servant mindset, I am attentive to the needs of others. I have open eyes and open ears tuned into what they may need. Selah has a little Fisher-Price dollhouse, and there, is, there are buttons uh, that you can press, and it plays little songs about different things around the house. And one of those songs starts this way. I won't sing it, but I'll, I'll give you the lyrics. Uh, sometimes giving help to others means you need to look for what, Selah? <laughs> it's been too long since you played with the dollhouse, apparently. Uh, sometimes giving help to others means you need to look for clues. And the first time she was playing with that and I heard that song, I said to Alyssa, clues? Like, what is this, Sherlock Holmes? Like, what are you talking about? And then my wife sweetly reminded me that, you know, sometimes it's not immediately obvious that someone needs help. You have to pay attention to others' needs. 
spoken by a woman who has been the victim of my inattentiveness on more than one occasion. Well, uh, let me tell you, that got my attention uh, whenever, <laughs> whenever we had that conversation. A servant mindset is one of with attentiveness to others, looking for clues of what others might need, how I might serve others and benefit someone else. Well, how do you think about your identity? Which kind of mindset do you have, a, a master mindset or a servant mindset? Uh, do you think of yourself as someone who others should serve? Or do you think of yourself as someone who serves others? Are your thoughts consumed by what you want and how to get it? Do you get upset when other people get in the way of you getting what you want? Or are you attentive to the needs of others? Now, I'm going to press it one level deeper on this servant mindset. Because maybe you would say, no, my aim is to be a servant. I, I want to be a servant. You're not out of the woods yet. Because if your aim is to be a servant, here's the question you need to ask. In seeking to be a servant, are you most concerned with you being the hero by doing the serving? Or are you most concerned with the other person's need being met, even if you had nothing to do with it? Because sometimes we can get pretty... um, Uh, boastful even in our own hearts about how good we are at not being a master but being a servant. But then we get concerned mostly with us doing the serving instead of just making sure that the person's needs are met. Well, Jesus added to himself the identity of a servant. This was his mindset. And that's the kind of mindset that he wants to form in those of us who belong to him. So may we have the mind of a servant like Christ had the mind of a servant. We need to rethink our status, rethink our identity. And then lastly, we need to rethink our obedience. Rethink our obedience. Jesus becoming a man was not the end of the story or even the whole story. Verse 8, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Jesus was in human form. Uh, Again, he was still divine, but He humbled himself by giving up his divine rights. But Jesus' humbling did not stop there. Jesus became a human. He added a human nature to his divine nature. But Jesus' humbling didn't stop at him becoming a human. Even as a human, Jesus humbled himself. It wasn't enough that God became man. He went further than that and humbled himself even as a man. He was God incarnate. And so think about how he could have come as a man. 
I mean, it would, it's, it's quite a humbling just to add on human form. But then he could have come to live as a man with prestige. He could have come to live as a man with power. He could have come to live as a man with riches. But he didn't. As a man, he humbled himself. And what did his humility look like? He humbled himself by becoming obedient. His humility was expressed by his obedience to God the Father. Jesus said in John 6, 38, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Hebrews 5, 8, and this is a verse that is mind-blowing if you think of it, but we don't have enough time to dive, dive deep into it. But just listen to what the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 5, 8 about Jesus. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Eternal God, creator of all things, learned. Again, we don't have time to to get into that right now, but he learned obedience through what he suffered. There, There was a kind of obedience that Jesus could not experience as only God. There's a kind of obedience that Jesus could not experience being only God. He had to humble himself and become a man in order to experience that level of obedience that he engaged in in his life. He had to humble himself by becoming a man, and he had to suffer as a man in order to learn the kind of obedience that we see in Jesus. And and Jesus went all the way with his obedience. Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. And if that wasn't low enough, it was even death on a cross. God the Son did not become a man just to live as a man. God the Son became a man to die as a man. This is why we celebrate Christmas. Because God became a man to die as a man. God the Son could not be obedient to the point of death as only God. Because God cannot die. God the Son had to become a mortal man with the ability to die in order to be able to obey to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus said in Matthew 20, verse 28, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus' mindset was one of humble obedience to his Father. And if we have the mind of Christ, as Paul calls us to again in verse 5, 
if we have the mind of Christ, we too will humbly obey God. But here, we need to understand something very crucial. It is true that Christ's obedience is an example of how we should obey. But there's something more. It's not just that Christ's obedience is the example of how we should obey. Christ's obedience is the only reason we can obey. Look down with me at what Paul says in verse 12 of Philippians 2. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So, if you boil down what Paul says in verse 12, he says, as you have already obeyed, keep on obeying. That's his point. But he doesn't just say, as you have already obeyed, keep on obeying. He uses a different term for obeying that second time. Because according to Paul, what it means for a Christian to obey is to work out your salvation. Obedience as a Christian comes out of the salvation that Jesus purchased for us. The only reason we can obey is because of the salvation that Jesus purchased for us. As we said from the beginning, Jesus is the perfect example of God's design for humanity. You look to Jesus, you see what we were all supposed to be. Not only in his mind, but in everything about him. This is the, 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 the absolute um, ultimate picture of what a human is supposed to be. But in our sin, we have failed to be what God wants for us to be. We have failed to be the humans that God wanted for us to be. We don't have the mind that we're supposed to have. We don't have the actions we're supposed to have. We don't live up to what our best is meant to be. And because of our sin, we cannot free ourselves from sin. Sin has power over us. We are slaves to that sin that, keep, uh, that keeps us from being all that God wants us to be, from, that keeps us from thinking like the mind of Christ, that keeps us from following the example of Christ. We're slaves to this sin that keeps us from being who God meant for us to be. And on our own, we will never be what God wants for us to be. The only way we could ever be saved from this predicament is by a Savior who is fully God and fully man. And so, the eternal Son of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death on a cross. And there he died to save us from our sin. Jesus humbly obeyed to the point of death 
on a cross to save us from our failure to humbly obey God. And not only did he save us from the penalty of sin, he broke the power of sin in his humble death. So now if we trust in Jesus, we can be saved from sin's power. He brings us into a new life of freedom in which we can live in the way he intended. Uh, This salvation that he purchases for us, this salvation from sin, is a salvation out of which we can obey, Paul says. Work out your salvation. Uh, That's what obedience is. He gives us a freedom so that we can live in the way that God always intended humanity to live. Uh, Jesus, as our Savior, is recovering in us God's design for humanity. He is recovering the way we were always meant to be in those whom he has saved, in those who trust in him for salvation. So as Christians, when we obey, we are living in the good of the salvation that Jesus died to purchase for us. 2 Corinthians 5.15, Paul says, He died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. He saved us from the bondage of living for ourselves and has freed us to a life of living for him. But it gets even better than that. Look at verse 13 of Philippians 2. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. His good pleasure. So not only does Jesus save us from sin, through the Holy Spirit, Christ lives in in those who belong to Christ. So now, it's not just that we look to Christ and do our best to follow his example. If we are in Christ, Christ himself is in us working. The one who was obedient to the point of death. The one who Paul says, this is the kind of mind that you should have. He is now in us enabling us to obey. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. (coughs) Excuse me. So, as we consider the mindset that Jesus had in his incarnation, as we consider this way of thinking, the way of thinking that God wants all of us to have, we need to recognize God does not just give us the perfect example of Jesus and say, all right, live up to that. That's not good news. That would crush us. Instead, God gives us a perfect example who is also our Savior, who came down to us when we could not come up to him. He frees us from the shackles of sin and empowers us 
to live in the way God always intended. And so we can think with the mind of Christ. If we're in Christ, in any situation, we can pray, Jesus, Jesus, how, how would you view yourself in this situation? Give me that mind. Jesus, how, how would you view others in this situation? Give me that mind and perspective on the people that I'm with. Or Jesus, how would you give in this situation? Give me that mind. Or empower me to serve with the strength that you supply. Jesus, I'm not going to be able to serve like you unless you help me here. Because God became a man, he has saved us and freed us and now empowers us to live and think as humans the way God always intended. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the perfect example of Christ, but that you did so much more than just give us an example that we are to live up to. Lord, you did not give us an example and then say, come up. You gave us a Savior who came down. And Lord, I pray that as we do seek to live in the good of the salvation that he purchased, Lord, that we would continue to fix our eyes on Jesus, not only our example, but our Savior, the Word who became flesh. We love you and praise you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's all stand together.